I'm beginning to wonder if we should have been bank robbers after all, stealing money instead of acquiring those letters. It may have caused less harm. Mosi, what do you mean? Al reacted in shock. I'm afraid Dr. Franklin is about to unknowingly ignite another fuse in Boston. And we've supplied him with the powder. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. Today we'll bring you Chapter 57 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, And in Jenny's corner, we'll find out if Miss Jenny has any method to her madness. And by madness, I mean the crazy amounts of incredible writing that that lady can generate. Okay, so this is where I usually introduce our co-hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. However, uh, none of them have arrived yet. Uh, See, we got a memo from corporate, uh, whoever they are, that it was time for all of us to get our headshots, which is not what it sounds like. (laughs) So before you draw the wrong conclusions... Let me explain. A headshot is a publicity photo of, well, your head, usually the front of it, which is what a lot of people call your face. So I guess they really should call them face shots, but that still sounds like something awful. Uh, But it's actually just a picture of you from the neck up. Well, in my case, it would be a picture of me from the neck up. The point is, you really want to look your best for these things. And so by now you're probably wondering why I'm still blathering about this, but it's because I'm 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 stalling uh, until at least one of my animal friends actually shows up from the groomers or the fur stylist or wherever it is they felt like they needed to go to get all beautified. And oh, good, someone's finally here. I say, old boy, I'm terribly sorry for my tardiness. Uh, no problem, Nigel. You're you're the first one to arrive, and boy, don't you look uh, different. Uh, what 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 happened to your whiskers? Why, whatever do you mean? Your whiskers, did they grow overnight? <laughs> On the contrary, old boy, uh, these are the latest in rodential accoutrements. Of what? Uh, high-fashion mice. And since when are you a high-fashion mouse? Since it became time for our new headshot. And you did explain that headshots are not when you... I did, Nigel. Ah, well, well done. Anyway, do you like my new whisker extensions? That's what those are? Those dreadlocks hanging off your nose? They are all the rage for this year's trend-setting rodents. Uh, Aren't you worried about, I don't know, tripping on them or getting them caught in the door or virtually anything else? And wait, did you have your tail extended too? Well, it is part of the look, dear boy. Oh, it's a a look, all right. And what that has to do with your headshot is beyond me. Oh, monsieur announcer, uh, pardon, mon ami. I am so sorry to be late. Who is that? Huh, I mean, it sounds like Lisette Briand. Yeah, but it looks like Cleopatra. <laughs> you mean Cleocatra? <laughs> <laughs> oh, knock it off. I just had a little enhancement of my already alluring eyes. A little, a little enhancement? enhancement? <laughs> First, Liz, what's up with your fur? <laughs> Indeed, all of her fur is up. 
I say, is that moose or gel, or are you just incredibly frightened? <laughs> I had my fur sculpted to give it more body and shape. It already has a body. And, <laughs> and who knew fur needed a shape? And what about your eyes? They're purple. Violet, monsieur. I had kitty contacts put in to make them look violet. And, uh... False eyelashes, my pet? They are all the rage. Indeed, for whenever you blink, a gentle breeze wafts through the room, reminiscent of our days in ancient Egypt along the Nile. Yeah, and that pink eyeliner is a nice touch, too. Sort of gives you a, I don't know, an alien life form kind of look. Ouch! This hurts coming from a Jamaican Mostafarian, and what have you done, monsieur? Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. When did you become a brunette? <laughs> I don't know what you... Your hair has lost its silvery sheen. Indeed. Uh, did you get your hair caught in the chocolate fondue, old boy? <laughs> now, don't be... Perhaps this tube of hair color will tell us... Hey, give me that. Uh, 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 essence of mocha fudge? <laughs> Who names these things? And why would someone put it in their hair? Uh, says the cat who bats her eyes and stirs up a dust devil. Now, see here... Ah, so sorry, Mlit. Me groomer got wee behind. And... <laughs> What's so funny? What in the name of little orphan Annie have you done to yourself? <laughs> I just got a wee perm. Oh, my goodness, Max. You are a giant hairball. <laughs> or perhaps the black sheep of the family. <laughs> Seriously, Nigel, I haven't seen an afro like that since... Uh, since you were a teenager there, Coco Puff? You're calling me Puff? You look like a dandelion that just blew through a coal mine. Well, I probably blew through after Liz batted her eyes, then. <laughs> I say, good one, puff doggy. <laughs> Since the mouse wearing breeds longer than he is, they are whisker extensions. Or, as we kitties call them, toys. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, settle down. We've, we've all had a good laugh here, but let's not go overboard. Says the guy with the dye that makes him look fly. <laughs> right, nobody says fly anymore. Brillo pad. I rest me case, chocolate drop. And Liz, when did you become an Egyptian porcupine? And when did you turn into dryer lint? What? Ch-ch-ch-chia! Enough, enough! I say, take a good look around. I think it's fair to say that we all look uh, rather... Ridiculous. We, oui, mes amis, and we have a story waiting to be continued. So, Monsieur Coco... <laughs> uh, Monsieur Announcer... Push button number one, and let's get on with today's chapter. Gladly. Chapter 57. Troubling Letters. London, December 10th, 1772. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Al happily swished his tail back and forth, and he held back his head to belt out the Christmas carol. He was decorating the frame of his royal cat bed with sprigs of holly he had found in the parlor. And on the holly's thorny points, he carefully skewered cubes of cheese. He animated each and every word by rapidly bobbing his head as he sang. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Nigel was about to die from laughter 
wiping away tears from behind his spectacles to see the large orange cat singing and decorating his room for Christmas. Al was unaware his little mouse friend had arrived and blissfully continued to howl at the top of his lungs. <laughs> if the humans were around, they would surely think the old boy was bellowing out in pain, <laughs> Nigel thought with a chuckle. Nigel looked around the room, festooned with garlands of holly, ivy, pine boughs, and berries. He ran over to pull off a few stringed cranberries and slowly walked up behind Al, joining in singing the Christmas carol. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Al stopped singing and looked up. No, that sounds like Mousy. He slowly turned to see his little mouse friend walking up behind him, smiling broadly with the berries raised in the air. Al and Nigel proceeded to finish the Christmas carol in unison, bobbing their heads excitedly to punctuate each word. And wonders of his love, and wonders of his love, and wonders, wonders of his love. Mousy! Al exclaimed, dropping the holly and picking Nigel up in a smothering embrace. I'm so happy, happy, happy to see you. Clarice said you'd be coming, so I wanted to surprise you with me Christmas decorations. Look, I decorated with cheese. Nigel struggled to pop his head out from Al's fluffy orange fur. I am happy to see you as well, old boy. Um, um, may I add these berries to your festive array? Sure, Al answered happily, setting Nigel down. Nigel stuck the cranberries onto some of the holly thorns and smiled. I must say, you've made quite the bountiful, delicious garland, he started to say before Al snatched a piece of cheese from the garland and popped it into his mouth. But something tells me it will not last long. Al smiled. Aye, that's the hazard of decorating with food. Nigel wiggled his whiskers and chuckled. <laughs> well, Christmasing would not be complete without the merriment of food to enjoy. That's what I always say. Al picked off another piece of cheese. That's why I think we should celebrate Christmas all year long. Indeed, Nigel replied with a smirk. Well, now that I am here in London, let us discuss the mission at hand, shall we? I'm all ears. Al agreed, lying back on his red velvet cat bed pillow, pulling off one of Nigel's cranberries and popping it into his mouth. Uh, right, uh, we need to acquire some important letters and get them into the hands of Benjamin Franklin. Nigel began, pacing back and forth with his paws clasped behind his back as he detailed their mission. Clary indicated that we would locate these letters in the possession of a William Waitley. The letters were sent to his late brother, Thomas Waitley. He was a member of Parliament and secretary to the Treasury for the Prime Minister. Huh, which one? Al asked, picking his teeth with a sprig of holly. Uh, which one what? Nigel asked. Which Prime Minister? King George be on his sixth one, no, Lordy North, Al explained. That king goes through them PMs as fast as I do me Christmas decorations. Nigel chuckled. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Thomas Waitley worked for PM George Grenville, 
and was a huge supporter of that dreadful Stamp Act business. Anyway, these letters were written by then-Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson of Massachusetts in 1768 and 69, in which he detailed the riots in Boston following the passage of the Townsend Acts and suggested some rather drastic measures for Parliament to take against the colony. Hutchinson was made governor of Massachusetts in 1770, and his brother-in-law, Andrew Oliver, became lieutenant governor. Oliver also penned some of the letters in question, so you and I must find them and get them to Dr. Franklin post-haste. Clary said you have become well acquainted with the ins and outs of London and the men about our mission. Uh, where do you propose we begin? At the bank, Al responded, standing up and walking toward the door. But we best get there before they close, then. Uh, Nigel wrinkled his brow in confusion. The bank? Whatever for? Al kept walking. That Wheatley lad be a banker on Lombard Street. Ah, how splendid to be back in London, Nigel cheered, taking in the sights and sounds of the bustling Lombard Street. Horse-drawn carriages clip-clopped down the cobblestone street, and people from all walks of life filled the sidewalks, from wealthy merchants to sailors to children playing on the corner. Storefronts were decorated with ample items for shoppers, and street vendors called out their goods for sale to passers-by. Did you know that in this very street were one of the original roads them Romans made when they called this place Londonium? Al remarked, proud to share something he had learned. Fascinating! I recall our visit when Londonium was just an idea, Nigel remembered. Clary brought us here when our Roman soldier, Armandus, came here on mission to meet with the tribal kings. My, how this city has grown since ancient times. Al pointed to a coffee house. And there be the famous Lloyd's Coffee House. I like their scones, but they talk about boring stuff in there, like insurance. Sometimes Benjamin Franklin pops in there to get the latest shipping news. Good to know. Nigel replied, gazing up at the tall buildings as they walked along. There are so many banks here, Al. Uh, where shall we find Wheatley? Right there, Al replied, sitting down and pointing with his chubby finger to a gray building. So, how should we go about getting the letters? We shall slip inside and find the letters after the humans have left for the day, Nigel explained. Then we shall exit with the letters in tow and deliver them to Dr. Franklin. Al furrowed his brow and then put a paw up to his mouth in alarm as he stared up at the bank entrance. Oh, no! Do you realize what this means? Uh, what is that? Nigel asked, studying the front door to the bank. We'll be bank robbers, Al cried. We most certainly will not be bank robbers. We are not here to steal money, but to find letters that were simply passed on to Waitley after his brother's death, Nigel explained, adjusting his spectacles. See here, Waitley gave an American agent named John Temple access to the letters so he could find some of his own letters mixed in the pile of correspondence. We are simply reclaiming a few select letters as well. Since they were written by and to public officers, 
They are not private and are already well known to officials here in England. So you can put that image of bank robbers out of your mind this instant. Okay, that makes me feel better, Al replied. I'd hate to become a criminal. What's so important about these letters anyway? Nigel furrowed his brow. That, my good fellow, is something I do not yet know. The fire crackled, and Benjamin Franklin took a sip of his hot toddy while wiggling his toes against the warmth of the fireplace. He immediately started feeling revived after trudging home in the snow. Ah, much better, he murmured to himself, shaking off the December cold of London. He reached over and picked up the packet left for him while he was out. It was addressed to him, but there was no sender's name. Hmm, I wonder who sent this. Al and Nigel hid in the shadows of the room behind the curtains, watching as Benjamin Franklin opened the packet. Not bank robbers, Al whispered. Hutchinson is the one who called for British troops to be sent to Boston, Ben exclaimed with wide eyes. He leaned forward, reading one of the letters with surprise. It is impossible for colonists to have the full rights they would have in the home country. There must be an abridgment of what are called English liberties. Hmm. This explains the harsh treatment of the colonies by Parliament. Not all the troublemaking is happening here in London. Much of it is happening right there in Boston from the pens of loyalists such as Hutchinson, he said aloud to himself. He kept reading through letter after letter until he reached the bottom of the pile. Finally, he slapped them on his knee, got up from the leather chair, and walked over to his desk, taking out quill and ink. He proceeded to pen a letter to Thomas Cushing, Speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly. There has lately fallen into my hands part of a correspondence that I have reason to believe laid the foundation of most, if not all, our present grievances. Nigel snuck up to read over Ben's shoulder as he wrote, explaining that the Massachusetts Assembly should read the letters but not make them public by any means. Ben was of the opinion that England's unwise actions toward the colonies were due to bad advice they had received from leaders like Hutchinson. A few bad apples were spoiling the relationship between England and her colonies. Ben hoped that by reading these letters, the men of Massachusetts would be able to move toward reconciliation with the mother country when they saw that it was their siblings who had complained to their mother behind their backs. Ben signed and sealed the letter and closed it with the packet of letters to go out in the morning mail. After he went to bed, Nigel looked at Al with concern. Oh dear, I'm beginning to wonder if we should have been bank robbers after all, stealing money instead of acquiring those letters. It may have caused less harm. Mosey, what do you mean? Al reacted in shock. I'm afraid Dr. Franklin is about to unknowingly ignite another fuse in Boston, Nigel explained, and we've supplied him with the powder. Raleigh Tavern, Williamsburg, March 11th, 1773. Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, and his brother Francis Lightfoot Lee, and Thomas Jefferson, and his brother-in-law Dabney Carr, gathered around the candlelit table in a private room at the Raleigh. 
The House of Burgesses had met for a week so far, having been called to a special session to address an alarming situation involving counterfeiters that threatened Virginia's flow of paper money. Governor Dunmore requested that the Assembly take measures to shore up the public credit. A ring of counterfeiters had been caught, but the way Dunmore handled them raised red flags in Patrick's mind. Patrick harshly criticized the new governor and embarrassed some of the older members of the House. You certainly have made the worst possible first impression on Lord Dunmore that you could, Pat, Francis jested. At least he knows you mean business. I do mean business, as should we all, Patrick replied, looking around the table at the men. Dunmore proceeded to round up counterfeiters in Pennsylvania County and bring them directly here to Williamsburg for trial, bypassing their proper due right of trial first in the county court. And he did so with the private blessing of the old guard members of the house. We need to jealously guard our liberties, gentlemen. He tapped the table with his finger. If Dunmore can round up citizens for trial here, what is to prevent him from sending citizens directly on to London for trial? That's exactly what Parliament has ordered for any Rhode Islanders involved in the Gaspee incident. Now, this must be addressed not just here in Virginia, but with our brethren to the northward and all of our sister colonies. Richard spoke up. Agreed. Gentlemen, the time has come for us to establish a committee of correspondence with the other colonies. We must communicate in a timely manner about incidents like the recent events in Boston, the Gaspi, and Dunmore, violating our ancient legal constitutional liberties. When Governor Hutchinson announced last year that he would now be paid by the Royal Treasury and not by the Massachusetts Assembly, the alarm quickly arose in that colony. If their leader was not dependent on the people, he could order unpopular measures without consequence, Thomas reported. So Sam Adams proposed this very thing you are suggesting, a committee of correspondence with towns throughout Massachusetts. He requested that local citizens share their grievances and threats to their liberties, and the people have quickly responded. They are sending letters, attending town hall meetings, and seeking to learn all they can by reading the gazettes. This committee of correspondence must not exist just within a single colony, but between all the colonies, so we can respond quickly on a united front. And these committees must function year-round not just when the assemblies are in session, Patrick suggested. I would go even further, to suggest a meeting of committee representatives from each colony to meet in a central location to discuss our findings. I believe Mon Henry just suggested a continental congress of some sort, Liz thought as she sat in the shadows, soaking in this astonishing meeting. She listened as the men worked late into the night on their resolves to be read in the house the following day. She pondered, They no longer sound like Englishmen. They are becoming Americans. Williamsburg, March 16, 1773 Once the resolutions were adopted by the House of Burgesses to form the Committee of Correspondence, eleven members were chosen, including Patrick Henry. Lord Dunmore promptly dismissed the House after having been presented the resolutions, saying they had no more work to do. 
On the contrary, they had plenty of work to do. The Committee of Correspondence promptly met and drew up a circular letter to send to all the other colonies, urging them to bring the Virginia resolutions before their respective assemblies and also each to form their own Committee of Correspondence. Peyton Randolph was instructed to send express couriers to deliver the letter and resolutions as quickly as possible. As the couriers rode out of Williamsburg, Patrick Henry needed to take care of one more matter before heading home. Liz frowned, watching Patrick Henry walking along South Francis Street on this raw, overcast day. This is when I need Nigel to slip in the door unnoticed. You can do it, Liz, Cato encouraged her. Absolutely you can, Miss P added. You need to see what Patrick is facing. Oui, I will figure something out, Liz agreed. Be ready to leave when we come out, Cato. Patrick is eager to return to Scotchtown, so we will follow Miss P from above. I wish Nigel were here as the one to ride on your wings, mon ami. I know I am difficult for you to carry. Cato stretched his wings and flapped them to warm up. It's okay, Liz, but if you weren't so light, we'd both be grounded. Thankfully, you're such a little thing. I'm sorry it's not very comfortable for you. Well, you needed to be here these two weeks to see all that happened in Williamsburg, Miss P added. I'm glad you both were willing to be uncomfortable. Uh, merci, but our discomfort is nothing compared with what Mon Henry is experiencing. Liz sighed and started following Patrick at a distance. Patrick Henry slowly walked toward the newly constructed two-story brick building topped with a cupola. It was almost finished and would begin accepting patients in a few short months. Patrick stopped in the middle of the brick path and read the sign for the building, the first of its kind in North America. Public Hospital for Persons of Insane and Disordered Minds. He lowered his gaze to the ground and clenched his fists, looking behind him as if thinking about turning around. Liz dodged behind a tree. He took in a deep breath, pulled the brim of his hat lower over his eyes, crossed his arms over his chest, and pressed on. His feet were heavy as he climbed the few steps leading to the asylum. Thankfully, the door was propped open as workers carried building supplies inside. Liz slipped in behind him, breathing a prayer. Merci, Maker. Yes, sir. Can I help you? One of the workers asked as Patrick stood in the foyer of the hospital. The young man held a bucket of paint in one hand and a brush in the other and didn't realize he was talking to Patrick Henry. I... I wanted to see how the hospital is progressing. I understand it opened soon and was curious to see the inside, Patrick replied. Governor Farquhar dreamed of building this hospital years ago to provide for... for those who suffer so terribly. I was getting ready to paint one of the rooms and can show you if you wish, the young man replied. He led Patrick down a hallway that led to a series of 24 cells. As you can see, each cell has a heavy wooden door with a barred window, so the patients are isolated and secure. We've got one room all set up that I can show you. Beads of sweat appeared on Patrick's forehead as he followed the young man down the dim corridor. He followed him to a completed room, but hesitated at the entrance while the man stepped inside. 
It was sparse and cold, with whitewashed walls. Patients will have a mattress and a chamber pot, he said, pointing to those items. He then grasped an iron ring in the wall. And their wrists or leg fetters will be attached to this ring. Of course, when they need to have their icy plunge baths or bleeding treatments, they'll go to another room. I can show you that, too, if you wish. Patrick's eyes filled with horror. This was more a prison than a hospital. He thought he was going to be sick. No, no, uh, thank you. I've seen enough. Uh, Thank you for your time. He quickly turned and made his way down the corridor and outside, gasping for fresh air. He walked briskly down the brick walkway to a nearby house. He leaned against it, his heart seemingly beating out of his chest. His hands were shaking from the trauma of even having considered putting Sally in that place. He clenched a fist and set his jaw. Not this, Sally. I promise you. He slammed his fist against the wooden boards of the house and started walking toward Duke of Gloucester Street. Liz wiped away her own tears of heartache, mixed with relief that Patrick refused to put Sally in such a horrible place. Cher Patrick, we will think of something to care for her. Do not worry, she promised as she watched Patrick walking away with hunched shoulders. He carries the weight of the world on those strong shoulders. His beloved Sally and his beloved Virginia. Yet who would ever know? Lord Dunmore gazed out the window of the governor's palace and narrowed his eyes at the thought of the troublemaker from Hanover County. He tossed the Virginia resolves concerning the committees of correspondence onto his desk and sat down. He took out a quill and dipped it in the ink to draft a letter to Parliament. Enclosed is a copy of the resolves and the list of men who were primarily involved, including... Dunmore muttered as he scowled and again dipped his quill in the ink. Patrick Henry. While Dunmore was writing his letter about Virginia's committees of correspondence to send to London, Benjamin Franklin was writing his second letter to Thomas Cushing in Boston. The fuse had indeed been lit when Franklin's packet of Hutchinson letters had been opened by the clerk of the Massachusetts Assembly, who happened to be none other than Samuel Adams. Oh, that was such a miserable day for Mon Henry. I'm so glad he did not take his poor wife to that awful hospital. Unfortunately, things have changed a great deal for those poor souls who must wrestle with mental disorders. Aye, tis such a shame. But then there are those of us who are not so afflicted and are able to reason coherently. And yet still find ways to uh, behave as if we have no sense at all. Ah, indeed. Like feeling the need to get our whiskers extended. When the whiskers you have are already rather dashing. Why, thank you. Or adding silly, beautifying tricks. When you already got real pretty eyes. Oh, merci, Max. Or taking the beautiful terrier furs that the maker gave you. And turning yourself into a giant dust bunny. Aye. Well, sounds like you've all learned a valuable lesson. That going to all that trouble to enhance what you already have is just kind of a pride issue. And let's face it, from now on, you'd have to doll up like that every time you went out in public, because your headshot would give you away if you didn't. We, oui, monsieur, we have learned our lesson. Indeed. 
We realize the error of our ways. Aye, we know the fur that we came with be just fine the way it is. Aye, announcer lad? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, why don't you all head over to Jenny's corner while I go soak my head? Try uh, bien, monsieur. Uh, be sure to wipe down the sink. Will do. I say, uh, shifting gears as it were, we shall indeed scamper over to Jenny's corner, where she addresses one of her FAQs. FAQ? Uh, Mousy, that's not how you spell facts. Ah, uh, no, Max. FAQ means frequently asked questions. Hello, Miss Jenny. Hey, everybody. What are you curious about? I say, Miss Jenny, tell us, as a writer, I'm guessing there are certain questions that you've been asked uh, more than once. I say, give us a for instance. Aye, and just the facts, ma'am. Kids a lot of times ask me, do I have a daily writing ritual? And that's a good question. I have periods of time where I'm in research mode, okay? When I'm preparing to write a book, I'm reading a lot of different books to gear me up kind of on the subject. So I'll read several revolution books all the way through. And in that phase, I'm just reading all the time wherever I go. And I'm not necessarily at home. I could be sitting on a beach or sitting at the lake, a dock or whatever. But then when it's ready to write and my outline is done and I'm ready to rock and roll, slamming out chapters, that's the first thing I do when I get up. I wake up and I go downstairs and make a cup of coffee and I spend at least an hour with God, usually more. And sometimes I'll get a workout in then or I'll do it at the end of my day. Kind of depends on where I am in my thought process and if I'm ready to roll. But then I'll go to my office and, of course, say a prayer and ask God, okay, tell me what happens next. And then I will try to get writing about pretty much all day to stop around five or six o'clock in the evening, uh, grab a workout, make dinner. And then sometimes after dinner, I'll read what I wrote that day a couple of times right before I go to bed. And then, of course, I'm writing all night, so then I don't get a wink of sleep. So then I have to have three cups of coffee the next morning. <laughs> so I do try to get in a pattern. That's one reason why when I am heading towards a deadline, it's very difficult to stop the rhythm of my writing routine because once I get on a roll, I'm a machine. But if I stop writing for a while to take a trip to go somewhere or a convention or to speak or this and that, it kind of messes up my rhythm. And then it takes me a while to kind of get those wheels cranked and greased and, and running again. But it's a lot of fun. And you know what? In talking with other authors, there's no right or wrong way to do it. You have to find what is the best way, the best time to write. Some people get up at 4 a.m., and they slam it out when everything is totally quiet. But I've just got to face God before I face my pen, or anybody else for that matter. Uh, well said, Miss Jenny. And uh, speaking of faces... And hair. And whiskers. As you can see, I have removed all my whisker extensions. Ah, that is the Nigel we all know and love. And uh, regarding my eyes, I have restored them back to their original design. And they are as lovely as ever, my pet. Uh, Max? Uh, well, this perm may take a few baths to completely go away, but I'll roll around in the driveway and get as dirty as I have to until it do. 
and that leaves a nouncer, lad. Well, uh, I got uh, most of the chocolate mocha fudge, whatever uh, it was, out. We, oui, uh, it may take a few more washings before we again see that silvery sheen. Aye, come on, lad. You can come roll around in the dirt with me if you like. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, Max, but, uh, um, last one to the dirt pile's a rotten egg. You're on, lad. Oh, yeah? Ah, bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? Not let them get dirt all over you. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? Not let them get dirt all over you. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A biento, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.